we bought these ingredients. We're like, okay, let's take this risk. Let's ship it over. Let's see if they can produce the product. And we get this note that the customs of the country was holding our product because they couldn't identify one of our ingredients. And what that cascaded into was every country's FDA is different, but they specifically did not approve of this ingredient. That was a core part of our formulation. It was the number one ingredient in our formulation. And I remember sitting at my desk that day and feeling like the world was about to end because we spent all this time, all this money, and we couldn't even get the ingredients into the country. And we spent like another month actually, basically pulling like every card possible. Hi, I'm Nikunj Kothari, and welcome to Roller Coaster. Today, I chat with Kevin Lee. Kevin is the founder of Imi, a company that is making healthy, nutritious instant ramen. Prior to this, Kevin was a venture capitalist at Pear and a product manager at Old School and Kabam. In this episode, Kevin talks about his journey to founding Imi. Let's jump in. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks so much for asking. And thanks for having me on. To start with, I'd love to learn a bit about your childhood, where you grew up, who's in your family, and anything you remember from your early years. That's a very interesting question. So I was born in California, and I've actually been in Northern California for most of my life. Born in a place called San Jose, south of here, to two Taiwanese parents who immigrated here from Taiwan. Some Asian families do something where for a portion of your childhood, you're left with your grandparents back in Taiwan. So for me, my parents were just trying to make their way in America, but they didn't have any money, no social capital. And it's very difficult to raise a child while you're just trying to go to college or even make money here. So I spent a lot of time actually with my grandparents in Taiwan. They are produce farmers and they grow something called a rose apple. <clears throat> so I literally used to just run around in the fields with them picking, stemming, packaging this fruit. In America, just, uh, yeah, grew up at very standard, very standard childhood. Uh, I was very lucky, I would say, just two loving parents. I think that's all you can really ask for in a family. And I was lucky to have a great education and, yeah, very happy about it. What were some of your early passions growing up? I think the funny thing is I'm like uh, Toby Lutke, the Shopify CEO, in that I'm really big on gaming as just something I encourage for everyone. It was harder as a child for me to make friends because you know I was this only child. I didn't have any siblings. So from a social perspective, it was just like at school, you go and figure it out. And online games were a way for me to have a shared interest with people very quickly. And that was a way where I would just make friends with people very easily. And I guess I would consider it a passion because I did honestly play a lot of games and I think also what was really helpful for me is I learned to just make friends with strangers on the internet, which sounds creepy. You're playing this game together, and when you play repeatedly, you just form these bonds with these people. And you never meet them in person, but you're chatting with them, not just about the game, but about like things in your life. And I think that's really helped me a lot, even as an adult, where now I would say more than 50% of my friends are internet friends, many of whom I actually still haven't met in person yet. And I'm, I think especially in current pandemic times, it's interesting how we're all stuck at home and we have to figure out how to maintain a social life online. And so I think my gaming childhood has served me very well during times like this to continue you know, feeling social. What are some of your favorite games that you play even today? <laughs> I don't play any games anymore. I think it's, it is harder to 
uh, maintain that habit. I, I will sometimes watch games. I used to play every possible genre, like from like first person shooters to real time strategy games. Like most people, I played like the Starcraft, Warcraft 3. I played Dota, Counter Strike. And I think ultimately, a lot of these real time strategy games are a combination. It's like time management. It's you have a finite amount of time and you really have to figure out how to allocate that time carefully. And you have, and then what you realize is you also have limited resources. And so it's about gathering resources and then figuring out how to maximize those resources. And that's strangely, there's just a lot of these parallels that I'm now. I've come to realize even with the current company where I'm like, oh my God, this reminds me exactly of that real-time strategy I used to game I used to play as a child. I have to figure out how to gather new resources and work with my co-founder to maximize those resources and then allocate that, those resources accordingly to keep growing. And it's pretty fascinating. I remember I used to skip school sometimes to play Counter-Strike and Age of Empires. And Age of Empires especially reminds me of building and finding resources and putting them in the right way. So definitely can relate a lot. So you end up finishing school and then you decided to go to Berkeley uh, for business. Did you know what you wanted to do while you were in college or as you were entering college? Yeah, in high school, I actually originally wanted to be a pediatrician. I love like kids and working with kids and just generally like youth education. I'm very passionate about. I am not the best at science, I will admit. I know that's probably a negative story I tell myself. What I've come to realize as an adult is that I think I'm more of a diffused networked thinker versus a linear thinker. And I think that serves me well in certain fields like business where I can apply more creative thinking. Whereas in more science-related fields, I do think it comes down to a lot of like rote memorization to learn the fundamentals and at least the foundations. And I always really struggled with that. So in high school, um, I had this pivotal moment, I think, in my late junior year where I realized, actually, I'm like super interested in all these business books. My dad used to make me read like the uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, just to start learning about personal finance. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I would go to Barnes and Nobles or Borders back when they still existed and just sit and go down the business section and read all these books. I was lucky to realize early on that was an interest of mine. So it was an easy transition uh, to go into Berkeley wanting to focus on that as a major. In addition to that is I was also lucky at Berkeley to live with a um, diverse group of people. So my college roommates, one of them was an industrial engineering major. The other one was a biological science uh, major. And so it wasn't just like all business and I got exposure to different fields. And so my industrial engineering major roommate really showed me the beauty of that field that was called industrial engineering operations research at Berkeley. And I ended up doing this certificate in industrial engineering, which basically was like a minor. And why I loved it is because one of the first books you get is a book called the goal. And it's just a book that uses a, it's a fiction book that talks about a guy who has to run. He like takes over this factory and he has to figure out how to make it profitable or else he's, I think he either he gets fired or like the company goes out of business and he has to rely on this, he learns from this mentor who's this industrial engineering guy who teaches him about how to find the bottlenecks in the organization, how to optimize everything. It was really fascinating for me. It's added to my kind of business foundation where I'm all about optimizing processes. Everything's a linear optimization problem. In my co-founder role where I take on more of the marketing responsibilities, I think it's helped me a lot with structuring the way I think about marketing and growth. 
So you decided to leave college to become a, an iBanker at Merrill Lynch, but then quickly transitioned to the world of tech and joined your early interest gaming as a product manager. Can you walk us through how you made that transition? Because I know from personal experience, there's a lot of people who want to be a PM and break into tech, but that's historically been really hard. As a business major at Berkeley, back then tech wasn't as, it wasn't the thing. And so really in the business school, you were trained effectively to move into either accounting, consulting, or banking. I moved into a tech banking role at Merrill Lynch and actually down in Palo Alto. So it was right next to Stanford. And I knew I loved tech. And I thought that tech banking was exposure to tech because I wasn't like a computer science major or anything. What I found myself doing, though, was that on the weekends where I wasn't in the office, I would always walk to the Stanford campus and I would just knock on the doors of all the labs, especially like the education tech labs. And I would just tell them, hey, I'm like a visiting students. And is it okay if I like walk around and tour? And the people were super friendly and they used to let me in. And I think over enough of a time period where I found myself continuously doing that, I realized that I just wanted to have more experience with hands-on building product. And luckily, I was also living with a high school friend who started as an associate product manager at Google. And so every day I would go home and I would just be super curious and ask him about what his job entailed. And I think all that exposure, reading answers on Quora about product management really led me to then want to work as a product manager. And I interviewed for a bunch of roles. The first role I actually interviewed for was actually the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on their education team. And I got pretty far in the process, but then last minute they were like, hey, you don't have enough operating experience. And at the time, the only company that gave me an offer was Kabam, a mobile gaming company. And it was good too, because I loved gaming. And so it felt like a natural fit that would also teach me PM skills. And it was also a very analytical role. And because I came more from like the finance background originally, it was an easier transition. So that's how my transition went into Kabam. Do you remember some of your hardest challenges that you faced working in product and how you were able to overcome them? I would say Kabam was a little bit different where product managers there were given PL responsibility very early on. Each PM is typically responsible for one game in the portfolio. And that means you're responsible for everything from engineering, design, and the financials. And you have to do the reporting up to management. I was very lucky in that sense, because when you're handed that level of responsibility, you really feel skin in the game very quickly, especially when you have to report on PL basically every single week. And I think a challenge for me then... One was that because it was a very analytical role and you are shipping features very quickly, I think what I didn't properly learn was the other facet of product management, which is user research. In gaming, because you have millions of data points, you almost treat the data as your user research, whereas in other roles where you don't have that, you're either going off gut intuition or you're actually speaking to the few users that you do have to figure out what to build next. And I think. Perhaps it wasn't challenging for me at Kabam, but definitely when I moved from Kabam to Alt School, which was an education tech startup, it was just the opposite end of the spectrum where we had like 200 students max and those were our users. And we had the 20 or so teachers and those were also users. And then we had parents of those students. So we had these three user groups 
And I would, I will admit it was very difficult for me to transition into that because I'm used to writing massive SQL queries, <laughs> digging through the analysis, using that to create a roadmap. And I really struggled at alt school to conduct the user research, understand how to process that, understand when someone is saying something, but doing something else. We really just uh, a fundamental piece of product management. It took me a lot of time to adapt to that. One of the biggest uh, pieces of advice I give most aspiring PMs is to have a lot of empathy. I feel mm -hmm. most PMs are very analytical, think a lot about the business, but not enough about the customer. And I learned that through a lot of my uh, career as well and can, can relate quite a bit. Definitely. You spent a few years working in product and then you decided to make the switch to venture capital. How did you end up at Funders Club and then Pair? I think the realization for me when I was at alt school was I don't think I'm a great product manager for a few reasons. And this is what I'll say is that I think as a product manager, you have to be extremely empathetic, but you also have to know when to detach your emotions from the feedback that you're hearing from your users. It's very easy as a PM to hear a really loud user who you then internalize as, oh, this is the problem and I have to go solve that problem it's much harder to detach yourself and say, oh, hey, maybe that's an edge case. Maybe this is not what they're really asking. It's actually this, and we have to figure out how to build this. And I think because I've been raised to be very service-driven, I guess it's a very cultural thing, I found myself just being a little bit too emotional when it came to that user research and user feedback. There are a few mentors who guided me towards the venture capital world because in the venture capital world, you're almost like a music manager in a way, like you're working with these individuals, their founders, and they are your partners and you have to do everything in your power to help them succeed. So if they come to you with a problem that is your world. <clears throat> you have to figure out how to solve that problem. And you really are in their service um, at the end of the day. And I think my skill sets and my personality type just lended itself a little bit better to that type of role where I just was really excited to do that, to be in service of these founders, to champion them, to help them win, because you're believing in these people when no one else is believing in them. There's that funny video from years ago of the person dancing alone on a hill. And then like over time, like someone else joins them. But like in the beginning, they're just the crazy person. And that's what founders are in a way. And it's probably employees who are like the, the second person. And then it's like the third person is the venture person coming to join them. After being in venture for a few years, you decided to start Imi. Did you always have this startup itch or were you tired of being in venture and wanted to get back into building? What sparked the, the desire to go start your own company? Yeah, I think there were a few reasons. So venture, I, I think my most recent role in venture was at Pair Ventures. It was started by two co-founders named Pagemon and Mar. And it's a generalist tech fund that in their fund too started doing food and beverage investing. And when I joined that team, I think it was also around that time period as I was getting a little bit old. I was in my mid to late 20s by then. I, I think I will admit in my earlier years of my 20s, I was very mind driven. I used to think of my mind as a software, my body as a hardware. And it was like, no, I'd rather invest in my mind. That's a software that can scale. And I think what, what happened was as I got older, my body just started breaking down, but it's not like it used to be. So 
my knees were completely worn down. Like when I ran this relay called the Ragnar relay, and I basically damaged my knees so badly that I couldn't run on concrete for the next three years. I started getting carpal tunnel in my hands because I was typing so much. And I frankly just wasn't exercising that much. I wasn't taking care of my health. And so I think there was this progression where as I was entering my venture years, my body started breaking down, my health started breaking down, and then my own family as well. My grandmother is pre-diabetic, and my parents told me that she got a stroke because of hypertension, and now she's half paralyzed. And both my parents have taken medication for high blood pressure for many years. They've always been worried about it. And like I could be at high risk too for high blood pressure. And so there was this culmination of all these things happening where I started to just pay more attention to health and wellness. And then moving into what I was saying before at Pear Ventures. So I come from a food family and I never paid much attention to the food industry before because I, I love f- eating food. And I've always, even in college, I would study El Bui, which is this famous uh, chef, Ferran Adria, who like really invented a lot of like molecular gastronomy as much as he hates that term. And I used to love it just for the pure visuals. It was beautiful. It was like art to me. And so I liked the concept, but I didn't think about it as working in the industry. But at Pear, Pagemon used to start introducing me as, hey, this is Kevin. He leads our food and beverage investing. And he was super kind to do that because he knew I had an interest in it. And it was great because also a couple of years back, the industry was starting to shift where people now in the US care a lot about better for you food options. You compare a Whole Foods to a Safeway, every single product in the category, is, every single aisle is completely different. And so this culmination where food as medicine, my food interests, my family history, my body and my family's health, like breaking down, that kind of just led me to start thinking, wow, this is a really interesting space. And fortunately, a friend of mine, Kevin Chanthasrapan, or we call him K-Chan and call me Kaylee because we both are named Kevin. We were both co-workers at Kabam around nine years ago. And he's always been super hardcore about health and nutrition. Like he's always done jujitsu. He studies health. Like he's really obsessed about it. I think one of his family members has cancer and he's always been like deathly afraid of getting cancer. He also comes from a food family. So his grandmother ran a, a pretty popular egg noodle stand in Thailand selling noodles. And his dad, uh, when he immigrated to the U.S., started running a Thai, re- a Thai uh, supermarket in L.A. and then eventually opened a Thai restaurant concept on Cloud Kitchens, actually, down in L.A. And so both of us were like, hold on, like we have interests in food and beverage, like health and wellness. Why don't we think about starting a food and beverage brand together? When you guys met, did you have a concept in mind? Tell me more about the early days. What did you guys stumble through? How did the concept of what is now IMI came about? So Kachin and I, when we met around nine years ago, we were in the same PM org, but we didn't know each other. And in fact, I think I even remember he told me once he was like, yeah, I didn't even like you that much because you were this like young Kaylee who came in, you took my name. Like (laughs) I used to be Kevin. Now there's another Kevin. And we didn't talk to each other at all. But one time we were both sent to Vancouver to work on the same project. And we both just showed up in the morning at the exact same noodle restaurant in some strip mall. And we were like, hold on, what? Like, why are you here? This is so random. And we just bonded over noodles. And we just became really good friends after that. So fast forward nine years later, when we got together and we started talking, it actually wasn't really that hard. Like people always say, did you do category analysis? Like how much industry research did you do? And we were like, no, we actually just said, hey, 
We both love noodles. What's our biggest problem with noodles? They're super heavy. It feels like super carby. There's not really any like nutrition in them. And originally our plan was actually to make a healthier noodle, like a low carb, high protein noodle. But the more we iterated on that concept, we realized that a noodle by itself is a strange product to work on. In the US, pasta is the most popular category when it comes to noodles, but an Asian noodle, not so much. Like It usually gets bucketed in a random aisle. And it wasn't that hard to then think instant ramen. That's interesting. We both grew up eating this product. It's one of the world's most ubiquitous foods. As we learn later, it is a $42 billion global market. It's pretty massive. And a lot of that's driven by Asian countries where it's effectively a staple food, where people eat this stuff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It, it's not even like a random restaurant meal or ramen restaurant meal. It's literally like you eat it every single meal of the day. When we learned that, we were like, oh, it's pretty much the same concept, albeit you have to add the seasoning packet, which generally is the worst thing of all because it's full of sodium and preservatives and food coloring. And that's how our journey started. So we started to then think about how do we make a healthier version of instant ramen? And what we really care about is low carb because our families, they're pre-diabetic. I think just over being overweight, being diabetic, those are two of the most like prevalent issues across just most of America and the rest of the world. And so we knew low carb had to be a core value prop. And then we slowly started thinking about ancillary benefits like high protein, um, higher fiber, being you know 100% plant-based. We aren't vegetarians. We do eat quite a bit of vegetables in our diet. But we realized that by making it 100% plant-based, we could make it more accessible to more people and hit different eater groups. And so that's how the journey began. But both of you were like PMs. You've looked at it from an analytical perspective. Did you guys ever, ever make noodles yourself before starting this? No, we did not. And that's the funniest thing is people, they always ask us like, hey, are you chefs? Did you cook a lot on the weekends? And not at all is the truth. Like we, we like cooking. We enjoy it. We enjoy eating. I would say we have good taste. I was reading the new David Chang memoir, the Momofuku guy, and he talks about Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace. And he says, Anthony Bourdain never became a, a famous chef per se. I think he started as a line cook, but he always had great taste. And I think he was able to convey that to other people. And that's why chefs loved him and loved hanging out with him. And I think me and K-Chan, we hope that we have great taste. And I think the parallel in the tech industry might be like vision almost. You have a vision of what the product and the company can be, and it's going to take time to get there. But at least you have that vision, because if you don't, then you're always going to hit the ceiling. And I think for me and K-Chan, we have a vision of what great instant ramen or great ramen should taste like. And we know that our skill sets are not quite there yet, but we were willing to give it a shot and give it a try to iterate until we get there. We're very honest with people. We said in the early days, it was us too watching YouTube videos. We would just watch people making noodles. We would, we would look at videos of factories and watch how they made noodles. We read research reports. My co-founder really is the product genius here because he would download these Japanese and Chinese research reports, translate them, and then literally try to recreate the recipes in our own kitchen with a pasta rolling machine. And when we made our first 100 versions ourselves in our own kitchens, we hit this local maximum of food science knowledge because we're not food scientists. And fortunately, a good friend of mine, he was working at this food and beverage brand 
And they had a chief product officer and a chef on, on their staff who he introduced us to. And we ended up working with those two as advisors. And what I will say is that much like the tech industry, in the food industry, you can't just find a general food scientist who will help you make the specific food you're trying to make. For us, these two advisors didn't know how to make noodles, but what they did know was helping us with two specific things. One is they helped us with throughput. And the second thing is they expanded our knowledge of ingredients. And I'll break this down a little bit. As PMs, our natural instinct when we were making formulas was to whip up a Google Sheets and start laying out ingredients, a formulation number, and then test that formulation and then start iterating like down that spreadsheet where we would swap in ingredients, change the proportions, change the weighting, change the grams we throw in the recipe. And I think the first thing the food scientist did was he looked at our method and he was like, hold up, you guys are swapping like two to three ingredients with every single formulation change. How are you able to isolate which variable is affecting like the formula? And this is like basic science, right? Don't, you don't want to have a multivariate affecting the, the results. It used to take us an hour to create one formula and test it. And that advisor was able to shorten that time frame so that within an hour, we could do three to four formulas. And when you have that fast throughput, your feedback loop is much faster. So you're able to iterate much more quickly. And then the second thing was what the chef did was he said, look, your formula is always going to be capped based on the quality of your ingredients. And this is no different than like most chefs. They always tell you your dish can look beautiful. It can have the best technique ever, but the flavor is always going to be capped by the quality of the ingredients. And that's why a lot of chefs end up growing their own ingredients. And those two were huge realizations. And I think they, they really propelled our formula forward and it took us another hundred iterations, but we ended up making 200 formulations in our own kitchen before we even got to a comfortable V1 to bring to a manufacturer. That makes sense. But did you have any early moments of existential crisis or things you're like, you know what, you've done hundred iterations, but nothing really tastes good moments that you felt like you should try something else? In the early days, when we were trying to create this noodle, we actually took a specific path. There is a popular type of keto noodle in the market called a shirataki noodle. It's actually a very popular Japanese noodle. Some American brought it over to the U.S. and turned into a whole thing here. But it's very popular in Japan. It has been for centuries. And it's basically a zero-calorie, zero-carb noodle because it's made from something called a konjac yam root. So it's just like 99% fiber. And it's very jellyfish-like in texture. So it's extremely polarizing. You have a portion of people who are like, look, I'm on keto. I'll take it. And there's a portion that's, oh, my God, this is disgusting. I, I hate it. And the original route was actually to try to improve on the shirataki noodle. So we thought we could add protein to the shirataki noodle and make a better version of it. And we hit a lot of food science barriers to a point where we were sitting in our kitchen. To make a shirataki noodle, it requires like a little bit of a chemical reaction in a way. And it like creates a really nasty smell. It's pretty disgusting. It clogs up your sinks. So you have to like dig your hand in and dump it out. It looks like flubber like that from that movie a long time ago. It's pretty gross. So I do remember we were sitting in my living room. We both looked at each other. We had just made like a couple batches. We had them in the refrigerator. And we looked at each other and I was like, K-Chan, do you like the taste of shirataki noodles? And because I was like, because I have some in my fridge. We could eat some for lunch. And he looked at me and he was like, no, man, I, I'd honestly prefer not to. And I was like, if we can't 
enjoy our own product, how are we going to evangelize this to other people? And that was a moment where we were like, okay, we're scrapping this completely. And we went back to a gluten-based noodle, which is how every noodle is these days. It's like wheat, flour, gluten. And we just wanted to bring back that familiar chew that you have in the noodle. Now, for listeners, I will admit our current noodle is very different from a traditional ramen noodle right now. It's much more akin to that of a buckwheat soba noodle. It's coarser. It does have a grainier texture because it's mostly plant proteins. If you've ever had bonzo, which is the chickpea-based pasta, I would liken it to very similar to that right now. And I think we're also at a, a juncture now where we're, we're thinking about version 2.0, which is going to be like a 10x improvement where it's almost indistinguishable from a regular ramen noodle. And we're super excited about that. How was it navigating the company through 2020 and COVID? You guys started in June 2019, which gave you a few months, but then the pandemic hit. Did it have a big impact on collaboration, thinking about what's next, working with a lot of third-party services? I would say it was extremely painful. So COVID hit. I think we were about to get onboarded with a manufacturer. And what ended up happening was normally you have to still go through an R&D phase with your manufacturer. I talk about this pretty openly, but you can't just take your kitchen formulation and expect a manufacturer to replicate it 100%. This is never going to happen. They have commercial equipment. They have a production line. They cannot tweak everything for your small adjustments that you make in your formula. So you make a lot of trade-offs along the way. And because of those trade-offs, you have to go through this R&D process to ensure that your formulation is still up to par with the final product they produce. So normally what you would do is you would fly to your manufacturer's location. You would live next to the plant. This is if you really want to get hardcore about this. And then you just go in every day and you work with their team on R&D. And the process is pretty smooth. Everyone's in the same room so you can taste and feel the texture and you can agree whether it's good or not and it hits the benchmarks. When COVID happened, everything went remote and the the plant went pretty much full shutdown where all of a sudden they had to cut a few food scientists. There was only like one person working at a time, which meant the throughput slowed down. It meant that ingredient suppliers all of a sudden were having a hard time shipping product across state country, state lines. So everything got delayed. And so our manufacturer couldn't even get the ingredients we needed in time. And I think the hardest part was Whenever we had a new version of the product to send to people, or sorry, to send internally for us to test, they had to mail it to us. And so every week we would wait for UPS to ship a product. God forbid it got lost in the mail. We would have to wait another week. And just imagine the painful process of waiting weeks on end for each version to arrive. Once the version arrives, we scramble to taste it. We created a spreadsheet where we had to somehow mimic organoleptic profile, that's all the variables of like taste, texture, slurpability, all the things that go into a noodle, and you have to rate them quantitatively. And that's just, imagine doing that because taste and texture, taste is subjective, right? It's really hard. So we had all these, me and my co-founder, a few, we work with some outsource agencies. We all were trying to triangulate whether or not the version was good based on our subjective taste profiles off of a spreadsheet. And it was just like, it was hard. I will admit it delayed us by months. Um, This process should have been way faster. We could have even had way more revisions of the product, but instead we were, we had to launch to market. So we had to cut down the revisions that we had. And that's why I tell people, look, it's an iterative process. And 
Reed Hoffman says, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. And that's exactly how we feel. We are, in, in many ways, we're embarrassed. In many ways, we're proud of the fact that we got to this point. But we're excited to iterate and keep improving this product over time. And, and we're very transparent with everyone about that. I'm excited. My delivery is coming today. So I'm excited to try some of it and share some feedback as well. I see a huge rise in DTC coming up, especially with Shopify, with remote, with like wanting to own their own kind of audience. Do you think it's never been easier to start your own DTC kind of company, but also never been harder given COVID? That's a great question. I I think there was a wave of 1.0 DTC companies, which was hey, you don't really need to do any product innovation. You can just take a product that has existed in the market and sell it D2C. And you don't need brick and mortar. You own the direct relationship. You use Facebook ads. That's very cheap for customer acquisition. And you will have a very high LTV to CAC. And there were many businesses that scaled that way. And I don't need to explain to the audience. I know everyone knows that online CACs have, you know, have just been rising across every single channel, Facebook and Instagram especially. And... I think now to break out as a D2C brand, you really have to innovate on the core product. You have to bring a certain feature set to market that hasn't existed before. Just because I think this Wave 1.0 has already captured the lowest hanging fruit um, that's available in the marketplace. For example, there are a lot of, there's actually a lot of better for you instant ramen brands that have, exist, that have existed before us, but a lot of them haven't really changed any of the value props. Usually it's just, oh, we're organic or we use like a higher quality broth. But for us, we knew we had to completely innovate in many different ways. Like the entire nutritional profile is different. All the ingredients are different. So for anyone who's thinking about starting a D2C brand, I would just urge you, make sure you do actually innovate and create something that's useful to the public. And you're not just rehashing an existing idea and bringing it online because it is going to be expensive. Like D2C buying users through paid ads doesn't scale that well. We've seen CPAs skyrocket over the past, even just two years, like double or triple. And if you don't have a strong word of mouth, you don't have a strong community who are referring people to your product and your retention, your repeat purchases are not there. You just won't last as a new brand. You spend a lot of time researching the food and beverage industry at Pair. So you must know a lot, but what were some surprising things when you decided to jump into it headfirst? There were so many. I wish I kept a notebook of all the things. The first thing I naively thought was, hey, we're 2 PMs from tech. We know how to run in sprints. We know how to create roadmaps. If we ship a product, it's going to take us three months because we're going to move so much (laughs) faster than everyone else. We're super organized. And the food and beverage industry and actually just general physical products just doesn't move that way. You can't blame it on other people too, right? It's not just the fault of your suppliers or your manufacturers. You're dealing with people's lives here. This is something they're ingesting into their body, right? It's not like software where if it doesn't work, it's not going to kill them um, or it's not going to make them sick. And so we had to be very regimented, for one, about making sure that our product was actually better for consumers, if that's the value prop we want to give. And we have gone to such extreme lengths, even to, I think earlier we were talking about Levels, which is a continuous glucose monitor. I wore Levels um, for almost two months, eating Emmy continuously. I was isolating variables, fasting for 12 to 18 hours, and then checking to make sure I didn't have a blood sugar spike. And we're very proud of the fact that, of course, I'm not like insulin resistant. Whenever I eat a serving of Emmy, that's I have a plus six you know, MG per DL 
it's very minimal. It's almost no post-meal spike. And when, when we gave, when we tested this with members of our community who gave this to even like diabetic family members who are very insulin resistant, they saw like a plus 13 post-meal spike, which I know without context as listeners, it's not going to mean anything. That's very low. I think if you eat like a traditional instant ramen, you could spike as much as 60 to 80. It's pretty nuts. Plus six is flat, essentially. I would even eat like almond flour and I would still get like a plus 10. Totally. And uh, I think we, we wanted to take care to do this because we started this company because we saw our families really suffer through these chronic health conditions. So that's really important to us. The second thing is, yeah, unfortunately, there just is a lot of lag time because manufacturers, suppliers, again, I don't want to blame them at all. It's not that they move slow. It's just that physical products, like you, you have to ship them back and forth. It's just not going to be ever as fast as software. So our time period did stretch quite a bit in terms of getting a product to market. And then I would say the second surprising thing was, this is actually a very positive thing. I thought the tech industry paid it forward. Like tech industry is amazing. There's people help each other all the time. It's a very amusing community, but the food and beverage community, my God, these people are so friendly. There is, I don't know how to explain it because I've actually seen both worlds end to end now and Food and beverage founders, operators, they are so generous with their time, with like introductions. They will even volunteer to come help you like move stuff. They'll be like, hey, we're going to showcase at Expo West, which is this huge trade conference. They're like, does anybody need an extra lift? We have extra space in our like in our U-Haul or something. It's just very friendly. And I'm, I love that about this community. What should we expect from IMI in 2021? I know you said you're already working on version two of the launch product. The biggest priority right now, one for us is just product. We have to improve the product. Right now, our product is around 9 grams of net carbs, 31 grams of protein, 9 grams of fiber. It's great great macronutritionals. But we know that from a taste and texture perspective, there's many improvements we can make. I think I mentioned this earlier. The texture can have more slurpability. The taste, some people can taste like a slight tartness because we use this natural ingredient to make the noodle shelf stable and it imparts this undesirable like tartness. So what we're doing right now is with version two, we're already iterating to try to improve on both of those dimensions considerably. The other thing is bringing down the cost. So we want to bring down the price of the product over time. It's premium price now because that's just all we can afford. Our margins are very tight in food and beverage, and we use very expensive ingredients to hit that nutritional profile. And then lastly is new flavor development. We've gotten a lot of requests for additional flavors. We're really excited to put out new SKUs. I think those are the three buckets we're working on right now. That's awesome. I look forward to trying more of these this year. Definitely. We always end the show by asking our guests to share a time that felt like a roller coaster. And what did you learn from it? So one major roller coaster, there was actually two I can share. And one is a little grosser than the other one. But the first roller coaster was we originally tried to do our manufacturing internationally. And there is a specific country we were targeting uh, that had a manufacturers and we spent something like five months interfacing with them. We made great progress with them. They said they were willing to work with us. And when we shipped like $5,000 worth of ingredients, this by the time, I think also we were bootstrapping this time. So this was just like our own personal money. We bought these ingredients. We're like, okay, let's take this risk. Let's ship it over. Let's see if they can produce the product. And we get this note that, the customs of the country was holding our product because they couldn't identify one of our ingredients. And what that cascaded into was every country's FDA is different, but theirs specifically did not approve of this ingredient. That was a core 
part of our formulation. It was the number one ingredient in our formulation. And I remember sitting at my desk that day and feeling like the world was about to end because we spent all this time, all this money, and we couldn't even get the ingredients into the country. And we spent like another month actually basically pulling like every card possible. We reach out to politicians and people like, like I went there on LinkedIn, found friends of people in the FDA and we just couldn't get it in. And that was my biggest roller coaster because we were like, wow, we can't even produce a product. We're screwed. What it ended up forcing us to do was to just reevaluate our manufacturing. And we ended up bringing it back to the US. And I think that's allowed us to move a lot more quickly. There's no guarantee going forward, like what we'll end up doing with manufacturing. But I think it, it forced us into a current path that we're really happy with. The second roller coaster was, and this actually might have happened earlier, was in the early days of formula. So maybe this should have been the first one. It's, I, I mentioned it's a little gross because in the early days of our formulation, we had too much fiber in our product, like way too much. And what was happening was I noticed that every time I ate two servings of Emmy, I just really had to poop. And I would go to the bathroom and I would poop a lot. And that's not a bad thing per se, because Americans, frankly, don't get enough fiber in their diets. But I think for anyone who's unfamiliar, who doesn't eat enough fiber, they would be alarmed. They'd be like, oh my God, I really have to use the bathroom. So I remember there was one week where me and K-Chan, like we would basically mix all of our ingredients in this flour blend. We would pour water into it and make a shake. And we would stand in the kitchen, shake, make these shakes. We look at each other and we like cheers each other. And we would just drink these shakes throughout the day. And we were just like bracing ourselves for the bathroom impact. And we had to do this as we like iterated through the formula every single time. Because that was the fastest way to get the feedback loop versus like making a full noodle from it. And that was just like a horrible few weeks of, oh my God, this is not going to work. We're going to make people like go to the bathroom nonstop. So thank God we're out of that. But those are two huge roller coasters. Those are great. Thanks, Kevin, for taking the time today and sharing your incredible journey with us. If people want to follow along or get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? For personal, you can always follow me on Twitter, Kevin Lee Me. And then for a company, you can go to immieats.com. That's I-M-M-I-E-A-T-S.com. And you can learn more about the product there. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for joining us this week on the Roller Coaster Podcast. If you like the show, please make sure to subscribe and review it. If you would like to know more about the podcast or have feedback, please visit our website, rollercoaster.life. Till next time.